I hope you can now hear me. Good evening. Uh, I'm Ann Hollander, president of the Penn American Center, and I'm delighted to welcome you to Penn's Latino Literature Festival. Tonight we will have a reading by Ana Castillo and Martin Espada, followed afterwards by a panel discussion on the subject of Latino writers in the publishing community. And at the very end, there will be a reception out in the front hall to which everyone is cordially invited. And now I must say thank you. First of all, to Ana Castillo and Martin Espada themselves, who have curated this entire festival. To also to Sir Susan Bergholz, who has provided her invaluable assistance all along the way. Our gratitude is, in fact, initially due to Paul Berman of Penn, who originally suggested this festival, and to Gerald Howard, chairman of Penn's Public Events Committee. Then I must thank those who are enabling this festival to take place all over New York. First of all, uh, Robert Polito, Lynn Winters, and George Calderaro here at the New School, and Professors David Unger and Raquel Chang Rodriguez at City College. Thanks are due to Denise Gray at the Brooklyn Public Library, Seri Colon of the Aguebana Bookstore, and Lois Griffin at the New Yorican Poets Cafe. Special thanks are due uh, to those of the Penn staff who organized everything from the beginning, Joel Lobenthal, uh, Mina Proctor, who were later joined by Lydia Lobenthal, also to Brett Kaplan and Scott Smith of the Penn staff. And lastly, we are fundamentally grateful for the funding uh, provided by the AT&T Foundation, Philip Morris Companies Incorporated, the National Endowment for the Arts, the New York State Council on the Arts, Penn members, and friends of Penn. Thanks to all. And now uh, we will begin with our reading, and it will begin with Ana Castillo. Thank you. Thank you. Good evening. Um, it's my pleasure, although. Uh, I'm a bit nervous to launch half this uh, uh, first U.S. Latino literature symposium. Uh, we hope it isn't the last one. We hope that the next couple of days will be um, exciting for everybody and informative for everyone. Um, uh, we would like to announce to everyone with our work that we are all here. We've been here for a very long time. We didn't just arrive. And uh, we'd love to share our many voices and opinions with you and hope that you'll come back tomorrow evening also to the reading that we're having and to join us um, uh, with the other events. I'd like to thank uh, Penn especially for hosting this and for um, coming up with this idea, which was very long, long in coming. And uh, particularly, I want to thank Martin Espada, who has worked uh, with me personally in inviting people and coming up with ideas for this and uh, Susan Burkholz, my uh, agent and friend, who has served as a consultant, and uh, Gerald Howard, my editor at Norton, who also helped uh, 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 sponsor this and, and support this, this idea. 
What I'm going to read from this evening is from the galleys of my very new book. I have a new book coming out in August with W.W. Norton. It's called Lover Boys. I'd like to read a short story for you from this. This is called Again Like Before. The city belongs to us. It was the first thought I had when we landed. It belongs to us despite the hard rain and the fact that I have been locked in my hotel room all evening. I stare out of the window at the rain and listen to my neighbors in the room next door discussing something very important in Chinese or in Vietnamese or in some other language beyond the range of my meager comprehension of communication. I left you a message on your machine two hours ago. I did not think of this as your city until we landed. It was still daylight, but the rain made it hard to see your city, the streets that you see every day. After I got my room, I leaned against her doorway for a while since it was stuffy inside. A Hindu delivery man walked past me with the pizza for the people next door. He eyed me up and down. I smiled at him. I don't know why. After he delivered his pizza, he eyed me again as he passed me once more. And just as he was about to turn the corner, he stopped and turned back. How much? he asked. He was standing objectionably close, close enough to smell his pores. What? I said. How much? he repeated. Understanding then what he meant, I turned away from him. I was repulsed. You'd better hurry along, I said, without looking at him. My husband's on his way. He hesitated as if he knew I was lying, but then decided that no was no for whatever reason, so he did as I asked. I looked down at my dress. Perhaps it was too short, the decoupage too revealing. My hair, perhaps all of me too, no. I dismissed the thoughts, the excuses, that is, that society gives the woman for such unsavory encounters. I remember when you made up my hair just like yours, by chance. When we met, our hair was the same length, cut the same, long layers of curls. Mine were from a permanent. Yours were natural. After our shower and shampoo, you applied globs of sticky stuff from aerosol can canisters to make my hair stiff and full like yours. You dressed me in your expensive clothes. We went out that night. There was a gentleman's club you wanted to show me. We were the only two females in the place. Two minutes after we sat at a table, a young man in an Armani suit leaned over from the next table, table and whispered to me, do you, know, do you girls know what kind of place this is? Without looking at him, but staring in front of me, as I did with the Hindu pizza delivery man earlier, I responded, do you know what kind of girls we are? <laughs> it was one of the worst evenings of my life. Well, not my life, but of my summer here with you. The entertainment for that evening was a chanteuse. Now there were three of us, a singer who sat on the piano and did her best with the repertoire of Broadway show tunes and in between told jokes that, of course, being a gay bar had to be gay jokes. I don't know why I say of course, but you know that what God gave me in other ways, he deprived me of what of with regards to a sense of humor. So as the evening progressed, my bad mood grew worse. Seeing us, however, together, she could not resist the temptation and spontaneously improvised her whole performance at our expense. Did we have our hair done at a two-for-one? Were we engaged? 
She jumped off her piano and with mic in hand came over to us beneath the spotlight in the otherwise darkened room. Excuse me, dear, she said, leaning over to me. Is that aftershave you have on? I grabbed her by the back of the neck and kissed her hard on the mouth. When she pulled back, she tried to laugh it off but retreated to the safety of the piano, telling the audience she would make sure she would sit in such a way that neither my girlfriend nor I could get a view under her dress. When the show was over, you said, why did you say yes when she asked if we were engaged? Why not, I said. I finished my second and last drink. Two was my limit, you said. Two drinks for me, none for you. The benefits one gets from being with someone who has already gone through recovery include involuntary recovery. But we're not, you said. You were pouting. The guy in the Armani and his friends were enjoying our argument. They eavesdropped on us, drank Moet and Chandon, and it was all great fun. My second and last drink finished, the only other female in the whole place, a misogynist, and you, mad because I didn't want to marry you. Pay the bill, I said, and then I'll see you later. I got up and got my jacket from the coat and hat guy and went out to catch a cab. It was our city, our summer, and I hated it. I can let myself remember now, sitting here listening to the rain, wondering if you will get in tonight and get my message, if you will call, and if I will care whether you do or not. It was your money, your Greek Orthodox parents in the suburbs holding the purse strings, your gay brother who came to check up on you, saw me there and stayed. Okay. He was only 22, had never been with a man, not a woman either for that matter, and I have no right to assume he is gay. The fact that I walked into the dining room one evening and found him sitting on his married companion's lap trying to spoon-feed him, I suppose was one of those cultural difference things that he was always insisting that I didn't understand about you and your family. <laughs> By the same token, the fact that he came in one afternoon with his married companion while we were making love with the bedroom door open was equally ignored, you know, one of those in-the-afternoon Greek things. Now, if you were, you know, like that, he would have had to beat you again, as he had the year before when he suspected it. So, no, of course not, you weren't. And I, I, what was I doing there with you? I was part of the family, like his married friend whose wife apparently was still in Athens having a baby. We were all part of the family until the end of summer. If you don't call, I don't care, you know. But if you don't call, I know it's only because you're away on vacation with your family, perhaps. I know that everything here with you is the same, everything. Well, the end of that summer caused a part of me to perforate, and it ripped off as soon as I got on the plane. I took your credit card number that morning, called a travel agent, and made the reservation. While you were in class, I was making my way to the airport. I thought of using your credit card number and charging a watch for myself at the airport, but I did not because I am a fair person. You were not. You promised me a round-trip ticket but wouldn't let me go. And your punk brother saying hypocritically to me, stay, Celeste, why do you want to go so soon? Well, who had invited him? He came one weekend with his married friend and the two camped out in the living room permanently, or at least until I left. Isn't that my sister's cross, he asked, fingering the gold crucifix on the 18-karat gold chain you had put around my neck that morning before you left for class, and I was still half asleep in bed? Yes, I said, then added, your sister gave it to me this morning. 
Surely he understood friendship, I thought. Hadn't he told us how he had spontaneously given his own watch to his married friend because he did not have one and could not afford it, being in this country all alone, looking for work, and his wife in Greece having a baby? Friendship, you know, like two guys who sleep embraced in the spoon position on the floor every night, one married, one looking for a wife. You know, friends. Get rid of these guys or I'm leaving, I demanded every night. And every night you laughed. He's my brother, you said. There's something weird about this, I insisted. What? Do you really think my brother is, could be gay? The thing was, you were really asking me. I didn't know what was going on. And it got more that way the evening a certain woman called you, a friend of the family, as your brother referred to her, because she spoke Greek. But you and I knew she was after you. Your brother took the call since you were in the shower. I know she wants to go out with me, he whispered to me with his hand over the mouthpiece. Give me that, I said. He pulled away, and with the telephone clutched to his chest, he ran into the bathroom and locked the door. The next thing I knew, he had given the phone to you while you were in the shower. I could hear you shouting over the water. What? Who? Oh, hi, how are you? The brother's married companion, who didn't speak English, was standing outside the door by then, both of us staring at it and hearing you and your brother talk, sometimes in English, sometimes in Greek, together, and on the phone and laughing. And then it sounded like he, too, was taking a shower. I asked you about that later. You said it was no big deal in your rather large family. <laughs> Surely this was not a cultural misunderstanding. By this point, I decided it was me and my own prudish upbringing where adult siblings were too uptight to bathe together. No, that was not the reason I left without telling you. No, my darling, whom I once desired so, at least for one summer, it wasn't two ostensibly straight men sleeping together on your living room floor and spoon-feeding each other at the table. It wasn't your brother coming into the bedroom without knocking and his friend always watching us from the doorway. It wasn't that we ate at some of the best restaurants in town, but you always chose when and where and if we would go at all. It wasn't my two-drink limit. It wasn't the gifts you gave and took back when I wouldn't say I loved you, when I wouldn't say I'd marry you, when I wouldn't stay forever in your city, in your apartment. It wasn't how you always shut the lights out, got on your knees before a big framed picture of Jesus the Good Shepherd on the wall to say your prayers before getting into bed to make love with me. And it wasn't those things about you and me there with you that summer that are too despicable to recall in this lifetime, but which will surely be recalled for us in some way in the afterlife for being so despicable and having nothing to do with love at all. There it is. There's your call. I'll let it ring. And you will surely call back. And if I don't get out of here, sometime in the middle of the night, you will come over here. You'll suspect I am out, and you will wait in the lobby and hope to catch me, catch me, as if I had surely been out committing a violation against you, my sin of insisting on existing without you. If I don't move quickly, you will move even more so, and there will be no escaping you. Perhaps I should get another room, call a cab, find an all-night bar. I can't stand the thought of it. You'll come, and in minutes you'll be crying, making those little donkey-like noises when you start to hyperventilate and cause a scene. We'll be forced to get an ambulance and spend the night in an emergency room. Then your older brother, the doctor, will appear, and he'll see you red and have strangulated by your own mucus and see me and ask to no one in particular since you won't be able to answer, who's this? And I'll have to tell him and look away, repulsed by the fact that he doesn't care who I am, but has asked simply to have better reason to dismiss me. No, it's too much. I should never have let you know that I was here. 
After all, there was no reason to tell you. It was just that we landed and I was sucked up by the tentacles of this, your city, and your name, and that summer that were all inseparable, and I called as soon as I put my bag down on the bed in this room. You must have heard that I married. That isn't the reason why, why I shouldn't have called, but it is a reason why I shouldn't have called, because you will surely repro reproach me for it. You'll write something meant to make me feel terrible on the bathroom mirror again in your crimson red lipstick just before you leave, like, why did you ever bother to call in the first place? And I'll spend an hour trying to wipe it all off so that the maid won't think badly of me tomorrow. But how could she think badly of me when it is you who is capable of doing such things, like going through my phone book and ripping out all the pages with names of people you didn't know and who were there before who were therefore suspected of being romantic liaisons. No, that was not the reason I left you either. I left you because I simply did not love you. I left you because I grew bored with your long black eyelashes. I left you because your money was a nuisance in my life. Above all, summer had ended, and I left because that is when I said I would leave, and I did which is what I had better do now, again, or perhaps not. It doesn't matter. If you want to come by speeding in your little car in the rain, getting my room number, pounding on the up button, then taking the stairs, do it. It is your night, your city, your money, your hotel for all I know. Nothing about you matters to me now. And all of this here that I am is you, again, like before. Gracias. Martín Espada. Thank you for that reading and thank you also for helping to bring about this historic occasion, this uh, Latino Literary Festival. And I also want to thank everyone who's been involved in putting this together. It's a tremendous amount of work. And uh, in particular, I'd like to single out Karen Kennerly and Joel Loventhal for their help in making this happen. Uh, I'm going to read a few poems. I'm going to start with a poem which is the title poem of a book which Norton just published this month, actually in April, called Imagine the Angels of Bread. And uh, the story behind this poem is very simple, really. I was asked to write this poem um, by uh, some people at NPR for the new year, at that time the new year 1994, but the poem could apply to any year at all, including this one. And um, the premise is this. Uh, what if this were the year that justice was finally done? Uh, and uh, of course, it's a poem, so you don't take it quite so literally. And I don't 
think for a moment that change happens overnight, but I'm also well aware that no change, no great change ever happens without being imagined first. Even if at the time we imagine that change, it seems absolutely hopeless, impossible. Thus the poem. Imagine the angels of bread. This is the year that squatters evict landlords. Gazing like admirals from the rail of the roof deck or levitating hands in praise of steam in the shower. This is the year that shawled refugees deport judges who stare at the floor and their swollen feet as files a stamp with their destination. This is the year the police revolvers stove hot blister the fingers of raging cops and nightstick splinter in their palms. This is the year that dark-skinned men lynched a century ago returned to sip coffee quietly with the apologizing descendants of their executioners. This is the year that those who swim the borders undertow and shiver in boxcars are greeted with trumpets and drums at the first railroad crossing on the other side. This is the year that the hands pulling tomatoes from the vine uproot the deed to the earth that sprouts the vine, the hands canning tomatoes a name than the will that owns the bedlam of the cannery. This is the year that the eyes stinging from the poison that purifies toilets awaken at last to the sight of a rooster-loud hillside, pilgrimage of immigrant birth. This is the year that cockroaches become extinct, that no doctor finds a roach embedded in the ear of an infant. This is the year that the food stamps of adolescent mothers are auctioned like gold doubloons, and no coin is given to buy machetes for the next bouquet of severed heads in coffee plantation country. If the abolition of slave manacles began as a vision of hands without manacles, then this is the year. If the shutdown of extermination camps began as imagination of a land without barbed wire or the crematorium, then this is the year. If every rebellion begins with the idea that conquerors on horseback are not many-legged gods, that they too drown if plunged in the river, then this is the year. So may every humiliated mouth, teeth like desecrated headstones, fill with the angels of bread. Thank you. Well, <clears throat> I am uh, originally from the tropical paradise of Brooklyn, New York. And um, all my young life I heard about this place, this Puerto Rico. Finally got a chance to go when I was about 10. This is a poem about that. It's called Coca-Cola and Coco Frio. On his first visit to Puerto Rico, island of family folklore, the fat boy wandered from table to table with his mouth open. At every table, some great aunt would steer him with cool spotted hands to a glass of Coca-Cola. One even sang to him in all the English she could remember, a Coca-Cola jingle from the 40s. He drank obediently, though he was bored with this potion familiar from soda fountains in Brooklyn. Then, at a roadside stand off the beach, the fat boy opened his mouth to coco frio, a coconut chilled, then scalped by a machete so that a straw could inhale the clear milk. 
The boy tilted the green shell overhead and drooled coconut milk down his chin. Suddenly, Puerto Rico was not Coca-Cola or Brooklyn, and neither was he. For years afterward, the boy marveled at an island where the people drank Coca-Cola and sang jingles from World War II in a language they did not speak. While so many coconuts in the trees sagged heavy with milk, swollen and unsuckled. Well, uh, I've written a series of poems about my experiences working as a, as a lawyer, mostly in tenant law, but I also did some bilingual education law. And um, yeah, I was one of the nice lawyers. I realize that's like saying I was one of the nice vampires, but okay. Um, this next poem is based on a case, loosely, uh, inspired by a case. Uh, that took place up at uh, English High School in Lynn, Massachusetts, where they had actually banned the Spanish language at lunchtime. So we went up there and uh, took care of the problem. <laughs> Told the principal he had to read a document called the Constitution. And this poem resulted, it's called The New Bathroom Policy at English High School. Um, and this is one of those poems that I think it makes sense to do both in Spanish and English, short poem. Nueva norma para el baño en la English High School. Los muchachos cacaren español en el baño. Mientras el principal de la escuela los oye desde el inodoro. La única palabra que le conoce es su propio nombre. Y esto le da estrenamiento. Por tanto, decide prohibir el español en los baños. Ahora puede rejalarse. The new bathroom policy at English High School. The boys chatter Spanish in the bathroom while the principal listens from his stall. The only word he recognizes is his own name. And this constipates him. So he decides to ban Spanish in the bathrooms. Now he can relax. <laughs> so I became this thing after a while, this poet lawyer, like a creature out of Greek mythology, you know, this the body of a lawyer and the head of a poet. And I began to go around doing readings and uh, went to a lot of high schools. And uh, this next poem came out of an experience, conversation I actually had all about expectations and uh, reminded me that I really am responsible to go around bashing stereotypes, smashing them to pieces. It's a poem called My Native Costume. When you come to visit, said a teacher from the suburban school, don't forget to wear your native costume. <laughs> but I'm a lawyer, I said. My native costume is a pinstripe suit. You know, the teacher said, a Puerto Rican costume. 
like a guayabera? The shirt, I said. But it's February. The children want to see a native costume, the teacher said. So I went to the suburban school, embroidered guayabera short sleeve shirt over a turtleneck, and said, look kids, cultural adaptation. They didn't invite me back. <laughs> I want to do a poem now for somebody who's here and actually will be on the panel later. And uh, it's a compañera, Demetria Martinez, who inspired the following poem. And uh, you may hear more about this later, but uh, Demetria Martinez is a journalist, a poet, and a novelist. And uh, a few years ago, she was indicted in connection with the sanctuary movement. She was uh, indicted on charges of allegedly uh, smuggling so-called illegal aliens into the United States, uh, particularly two pregnant Salvadoran women. Um, and um, she was looking at 25 years in prison and over a million dollars in fines. Uh, and her poetry was actually used against her as evidence of her involvement because she wrote a poem about these two women. Um, Demetria Martinez was acquitted on First Amendment grounds. Uh, it was uh, found that she had the right as a a journalist, uh, as a writer, to be in the presence of these refugees. So the following poem resulted, um, and it's called Sing in the Voice of a God Even Atheists Can Hear, for Demetria Martinez, Albuquerque, New Mexico, August 1988. The prosecutors spoke conspiracy, as if Demetria were a mercenary trading in helicopter gunships, not the poet with a reporter's notebook. The prosecutors spoke smuggling, as if two pregnant refugees were bundles of heroin, not fleeing a war of slit bellies. The prosecutors spoke illegal aliens, as if El Salvador were a planet of brown creatures with antenna, not mestizo women dividing in birth. The prosecutors spoke of conspiracy to smuggle illegal aliens, indicting the poet with a poem, her poem for two women of El Salvador, traveling with them by way of Juarez, evidence abducted from her desk. So Demetria, accused, stood in the meandering patient line of all the accused. Accused of ducking searchlights and gunshots on the border, crossing the river to steal televisions from sleeping suburban dens. Accused of mopping in slow, lazy rings or letting meat burn in the spitting grease. Accused of bruising the fruit with bruised hands, picking for so many nickels paid on the bucket. Accused of the bristling knives and needles, the slash and puncture of the tattooed arm. Accused of leering with an accent at the cheerleaders of private high schools. Accused of causing ear infections by jabbering in Espanol at the bar or pangs in the teeth of those who mispronounce their names. Accused of skin so brown their brains must shrink with every promiscuous generation. Accused of kissing the welfare check twice a month so the man with a pickup truck paying taxes can never buy a boat. Accused of conquering territory in Potter's Field, crowding cemeteries with crosses like commuters on the subway at rush hour. But the dead, 
those dead, exhausted by the drum roll of accusation, heard the indictment of Demetria. They knew she walked at the elbow of pariahs, quietly singing sanctuary. So the dead opened their mouths and began to sing, not the soprano of choirs glowing white, but the rough-throated song of people at work or pause from work in barrios and fields, the heart attack seamstress, the lettuce picker in pesticide fog, the boy who painted murals before the bullet. In Mexico, her peasant ancestors sang the corrido of Demetria the renegade to Zapata's troops. In El Salvador, the dead with amputated tongues could suddenly sing, their music floating like steam. Together they would sing in the voice of a god even atheists can hear, even a jury across the border. And the poet was free. I'd like to finish with a poem for my son, Clemente. He's named for the poet Clemente Soto Vélez, great Puerto Rican poet who lived in this city for many years. Another point of departure for this poem is the literal translation of his name, and one translation is merciful. And I think that's a fortunate inheritance. The other point of departure for this poem is simply uh, his illness at the age of six weeks and his hospitalization. So that's where we begin with this piece. And the poem also includes a prayer uh, for his future, future that he will help to make. Uh, and I speak to him directly in the poem. I'll finish with this piece. It's called Because Clemente Means Merciful for Clemente Gilbert Espada, February 1992. At 3 a.m., we watch the emergency room doctor press a thumb against your cheekbone to bleach your eye with light. The spinal fluid was clear, drained from the hole in your back, but the x-ray film grew a stain on the lung, explained the seizing cough, the wailing heat of fever, pneumonia at the age of six weeks, a bedside vigil. Your mother slept beside you, stitches at birth still burning. When I asked, will he be okay? No one would answer, yes. I closed my eyes and dreamed my father dead, naked on a steel table as I turned away. In the dream, when I looked again, my father had become my son. So the hospital kept us, the oxygen mask, a frayed wire taped to your toe for reading the blood, the medication forgotten from shift to shift, a doctor bickering with radiology over the film, the bald girl with a cancerous rib removed, the pediatrician who never called, the yawning intern, the hospital roommate's father from Guatemala ignored by the doctors as if he had picked their morning coffee, the check marks and initials at 5 a.m., the pages of forms flipping like a deck of cards, record-keeping for the records office, the lawyers, and the morgue. One day, while the laundry in the basement hissed white sheets and sheets of paper documented dwindling breath, you spat mucus, gulped air, and lived. We listened to the bassoon of your lungs, the cadenza of the next century resonate. The Guatemalan father did not need a stethoscope to hear the breathing 
and he grinned. I grinned too, and because Clemente means merciful, stood beside the Guatemalteco, repeating in Spanish everything that was not said to him. I know someday you'll stand beside the Guatemalan fathers, speak in the tongue of all the shunned faces, breathe in a music we have never heard, and live by the meaning of your name. Thank you. There will be a short break at this moment before the panel begins. Uh, panelists to come and take their places behind their name so that uh, uh, everyone can see that you are you. Thank you very much. And uh, then I will invite Martin Espada to come and start the panel discussion. Thanks. Okay, uh, welcome once again. Uh, I am still Martin Espada. And uh, I'm moderating this panel this evening on Latinos and the publishing community. I'd like to say a few things before the panel uh, begins. First of all, I'd like to say something about the format uh, of the panel. I'll make a few introductory remarks, mostly in the nature of posing questions for the panel and the audience to consider during this discussion. Um, I will also be introducing the panelists and providing you with some brief biographical background. The panelists will each give brief presentations concerning Latinos and publishing. Some will speak from their own experience, some will do more of a big picture kind of analysis depending on what people want to say. Uh, following that, I'll pose a couple of specific questions to the panel and hopefully engender some discussion within uh, the panel. And following that, we will simply open up um, the floor for questions from the audience. And I want to remind you that following the Q&A, there will be a reception with uh, the writers you see here uh, and others who are participating in this festival. As moderator, my own presentation on Latino publishing will be offered as a series of questions. Questions for the panel and the audience to consider, uh, to bear in mind this evening. Of course, there won't be time to address uh, nearly uh, all of them, but this is, as they say, food for thought. Uh, these are some of the questions that occurred to me concerning this subject as I was considering this panel. And I think we begin with general questions. Um, what are the advantages and disadvantages of mainstream publishing for Latino writers at this particular point in our history? Um, 
Conversely, what are the advantages and disadvantages of small press publishing? How do Latino writers entering the mainstream distinguish between opportunity and opportunism? How do we avoid being tokenized? Conversely, how do we avoid the perception or perhaps even the reality of, quote, selling out? How does mainstream publishing change the Latino writer's concept of audience? If mainstream publishers are now publishing Latino writers, does the Latino community forfeit the right to decide who the Latino writers are and what Latino writing is? Who defines us and by what standard? Is there now equal opportunity for Latino writers in publishing, or do obstacles still exist? How do we honor previous generations of Latino writers, some now deceased, who are almost totally excluded from publishing opportunities? How do we educate both big and small publishers about Latino writing? Another category of questions to consider. How do we best support Latino writing and publishing? How do we support Latino publishing even if we are not publishing with Latino presses? How do we support Spanish language publishing even if we write in English? Are Latino presses in the long run threatened by mainstream opportunities for Latino writers or can some peaceful coexistence be established? And finally, what advice should we give young Latino writers starting out about publishing? Where should they begin? How should they present themselves? Where is the balance between publishing considerations and the search for one's own history and identity as a Latino writer? A huge number of questions and concerns coming out of this subject, and hopefully we can touch upon some of those uh, issues. I would like now to briefly introduce each of the panelists, and then we can hear from them in turn. And uh, I'm going to be speaking of the panelists as you see them, uh, beginning here on my immediate left and moving across uh, the table. So the first person I need to introduce to you on my immediate left is Francisco Goldman. Uh, Francisco Goldman was born in Boston in 1954. He's the author of a novel, A Long Night of White Chickens, from Grove Atlantic. He's also widely published as a journalist. His new book, The Ordinary Seaman, is forthcoming in 1997. Demetria Martinez is sitting next to Francisco Goldman. I'll introduce her next. Demetria Martinez was born in Albuquerque, New Mexico, in 1960. She has authored a novel, Mother Tongue, originally published by Bilingual Press, which won the 1994 Western States Book Award for Fiction. She's also published a collection of poetry, Turning, with Bilingual Press. Another poetry collection, Humming Bones, is forthcoming with University of Arizona. A journalist by trade and an activist, Demetria Martinez, is currently a columnist with the National Catholic Reporter. She also teaches workshops on writing and spirituality. Mother Tongue will be reissued this fall from Ballantine Books. Next to her, you see Jack Agueros. Jack Agueros was born in East Harlem in 1934. He has published a collection of short fiction, Dominoes, from Curbstone Press, and two collections of poetry, Correspondence Between the Stonehaulers and Sonnets from the Puerto Rican. Those are both from Hanging Loose. He has received awards in poetry, fiction, and playwriting, including a fellowship in fiction from the New York Foundation for the Arts. His translations of Julio de Burgos' Song of the Simple Truth is forthcoming from Curbstone this year. Next to Jack, Sandra Maria Esteves. Sandra Maria Esteves is from the Bronx. 
She's published three collections of poetry, Yerba Buena with Greenfield Review Press, Tropical Rains, a bilingual downpour from African Caribbean Poetry Theater, and Bluestown Mockingbird Mambo, Arte Publico Press. Her awards include a CAPS grant and a fellowship from the New York Foundation for the Arts. She's currently teaching at the Fannie Lou Hamer Freedom School and participates in the Writer Corps program here in New York City. And finally, at the far end of the table, Lagoberto Gilb. Lagoberto Gilb was born in 1950 in Los Angeles. He has published a collection of short fiction, The Magic of Blood, originally published by University of New Mexico Press and then Grove, and also a novel, The Last Known Residence of Miki Acuna, also from Grove. His awards include a Whiting Foundation Award, an NEA Fellowship, Penn's Ernest Hemingway Foundation Award, and the Texas Institute of Letters Jesse Jones Award. He was also a finalist for the Penn Faulkner Award. So this is a very talented panel, a panel which reflects a great deal of diversity, diversity in terms of nationality, certainly. We have uh, represented here uh, Puerto Rican, Dominican, Chicano, and Guatemalan, <coughs> Guatemalan uh, communities. Uh, but there's also a broad diversity of publishing experience, from Ballantyne or Grove to Curbstone to self-publishing from the New Yorker to the National Catholic Reporter to Claridad. <coughs> and so that rich diversity, I think, should help us in our discussion this evening. I, again, have asked each of the panelists to do a brief presentation on Latinos and publishing, so five to seven minutes apiece. And we will begin, again, moving across in this direction with Francisco Goldman. English and this one's Spanish and this one. <laughs> um, I, you know, where do I begin? I mean, I think one of the things I'm a little cautious about it's the nature of a panel like this. You know, that you might end up making sort of minor complaints sound like huge ones. You know, simply to have something to talk about. But um, I think that you know, I'll try and talk mainly about my own publishing experience, I guess, and what I see a little bit. You know, what I think has been going on to some degree. Um, you know, obviously, it seems to be a good moment to be a so-called Latino writer in the United States. You know, we're getting more attention than we used to, more publications than we used to. I don't think that that's anything that, you know, we should be grateful to publishing houses for. That's something that the talented individual Latino writers have has accomplished and the business's perception of a market out there that wasn't there before. Um, I think people make a mistake, you know, when they think uh, that the New York, particularly the New York publishing industry, is really a literary community. It's it's, it's a corporate community. Um, uh, uh, we're all aware, I think, you know, that this, uh, it, you know, it, it it's not a dilemma. It may just be an irony that that it's a very That's also a problem that every single other, you know, non-Anglo community in this country, you know, faces when they, when they write. If there's, if there's any danger in that, you know, and I'm not saying it necessarily is, is that uh, um, they perhaps create an image of what a uh, Latino writer is, or people think a Latino writer ought to be, that 
because they basically, you know, base their decisions on what is sold best often, you know, is not maybe as large and diverse as it ought to be or could be. Um, you know, I'm not a Latino in the way that word is, I think, conventionally used in this country. Uh, I come from a, a middle-class immigrant background, Russian-Jewish on one side, uh, Mestiza Catholic Guatemalan on the other side. Uh, for me, um, because of the way my family was and sort of broke apart, my sense of family was always very, very tied to Guatemala, my only grandparents, cousins, etc. I spent a lot of my childhood there. And particularly because of how I chose to uh, live my adulthood, uh, my ties to that part of the world especially deepened. I spent all of the 80s working as a journalist in Central America. And since then, uh, you know, in the 90s, I've spent pretty much half my time living in Mexico City and have just come back from there. So I think that I write out of a sense I mean, I kind of tend to think of myself almost as sort of a, 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 you know, a dual national, somebody with two nationalities more than necessarily anything else. And it's that tension, that sense, that that, that sense of a, a divided sense of place, I think, that motivates my work. It's at the heart of my work more than even the sense of divided uh, ethnicity. What happened to my book when it was published? I had a, a, a lot of support from my publisher, Grove Atlantic, right from the start. They signed me up when I was working as a journalist in Central America. And, um, you know, it took me a long time to write that book, about five years. You know, often, thank I wrote most of it in Guatemala, and thankfully, you don't need a lot of money to live on there. And I could get by with <laughs> even like $3,000 a year. And um, when the book came out, uh, you know, it, it, it I've always said, you know, that it was the rest of the United States and then England and then parts of Europe and Spain and Mexico when the book came out in Spanish that sort of saved me, I felt, from the um, fate of oblivion New York had in store for me and things had just been left up to New York. What happened when my book was published was that we got about, you know, 40 national reviews. Um, it was a Penn Faulkner finalist that won the uh, Academy of Arts and Letters Prize for first novel. Uh, I was happy with that, and I thought, wow, you know, I'm going to get a good paperback deal, and I really need the cash. And astonishingly, nothing happened. Uh, at the time, I recall being told by my editor that they were just absolutely positive that it wasn't going to sell, right? Uh, one of the prominent houses offered us $7,000 and said there's no way this book is going to sell more than 2,000 copies. I said, hmm. Well, my editor said, well, we'll keep it ourselves and we'll publish it ourselves as a paperback. Well, I just got back from Mexico uh, a few days ago and found out from my editor it's now sold over 30,000 copies. You know, uh, they were wrong. Now, I sat there and I thought about it, you know, and I, it's all water under the bridge now and no big deal, but at the time, I was very perturbed. And I thought, what's going on here? You know, I mean, what does a book have to do? And I think that uh, I began to wonder if maybe they thought there was a certain thing a Latino writer was supposed to do, New York being always a very trend besotted town, that in some way I wasn't writing the way the writers that had been designated as hot Latinos were writing. And I probably wasn't, you know. And I think that 
I think that uh, audiences and readers, I think that in the end, you know, good work triumphs over that stuff. You know, it finds its readers everywhere. And um, I think the uh, obligation of um, Latino writers, I, I think it's our responsibility to not allow ourselves to be pigeonholed, you know, and, and, and classified and categorized in the ways that it's just the nature of a corporate entity like New York Publishing, you know, to do that, right? I think that um, a thing that sometimes disturbs me a little bit when I, when I uh, see the way Latino writers are talked about in this country is that I think we have to be very careful we don't become seen as a kind of vibrant but marginalized sideshow of American literature. You know, if you take the example of England, right, you would never, you know, hear anybody say the great English writers are Martin Amos and Julian Barnes, and then we have all these interesting colonial guys over on the side who are telling us about the experience of immigration. You know, Rushdie, Shiguru, Ben Okri, etc. Right? Um, that happens here. I recently was reading an essay in a magazine where a guy, an American novelist, was you know writing about the novel today, and the, and the implication was he said, yes, you know, the new Latino writers are telling us about the new experience of immigration, and the implication was that the serious work of American literature was being done by somebody else. Right? We shouldn't accept that. You know. Uh, it's as much our responsibility as it is the publishing community's responsibility not to pigeonhole us in that way. I think that writers, you know, should always be pushing the envelope, should never be complacent, should never be complacent with a certain stereotypical image of success that may be available to them, should always, always, you know, be cabrones, you know. And um, uh, uh, I think in that sense, especially, you know, uh, for me, the model of, uh, of the colonial writers in England, for instance, has been, a, has been a marvelous example, you know, where that was a novel that was, the English novel 20 years ago, 15 years ago, was seen as stagnant and very small. And those writers went in there and blew it open and renovated the language. Um, I think we're, we're, we're very much capable of doing that here and that we should not allow ourselves to be limited in any way or to be seen as writers who are merely here to tell Americans about the new experience of immigration. You know, in my own case, for example, um, I think, okay, I'm almost done. <laughs> well, I'll, I can finish later. I'll say what I was gonna say later. Go ahead. Go ahead, finish your talk. Okay, I was, I was just simply gonna say, for example, right, the history of American meddling in the third world, right, in Central America and Latin America and the Latin American Caribbean, right, that is a theme, you know, that should not be seen, for example, as a theme for serious, you know, white writers like Robert Stone and Norman Mailer alone, you know, that's, that's a theme that's very resonant to people from, a, from our sorts of backgrounds, a theme that, you know, we shouldn't, those kinds of things are not the sort of thing we should shy away from and something that, you know, we can do in a different way and better because we know both sides of the story, you know, and um, 
anyway, I'll say more about this later. I think what I'll do is just, um, first of all, describe what my own personal publishing history has been and, and uh, then maybe reflect on that a little bit. Um, I was basically clueless about the publishing world. I, my degree was actually in public policy from Princeton, and after uh, four years back east, I decided to move back to the southwest, and at that time there were very few, I guess you could say role models, relatively speaking, of people who had been broken into the publishing world. and. I had decided that poetry was it, that was my future, and so I looked to people like Anna and people like uh, uh, Rudy Anaya. Uh, I looked at them and said, well, you know, maybe by doing what they're doing, I can, I can eventually uh, make this thing actually happen. So I, I started out pretty clueless in the, in the mid middle 1980s. Uh, to, to earn money, I, I began reporting but I also began writing poetry in a very serious way. Um, I published my first collection of poetry in an anthology with two other Chicanas. It was published by Bilingual Press. At that time, Bilingual was uh, going through some major changes in terms of its uh, technology, and so there was a lot of waiting for the damn book to come out and wondering when it was going to come out. And uh, So the first experience of publishing was um, felt like uh, I'd turned my... my uh, baby over and then didn't know what was going to happen to it. Uh, then, of course, I went through the nine-month uh, indictment and trial, and finally in 1989 the book uh, of poetry came out, the anthology, and I had quite a network already set up in terms of reading and speaking nationally because of what I had to do uh, in the course of my indictment, speaking out about First Amendment issues and also about sanctuary and what was happening in Central America. And so that put me on the road uh, for about uh, quite some time uh, after my poetry was published, doing readings. In uh, 1992, I wrote Mother Tongue. It took about nine months, and I had a sense that I didn't want to waste time schlepping it around New York, not to mention I didn't quite know how. But I did have a friend who had connections with Holt, and he sent it to an editor at Holt, and uh, it was rejected with a very interesting letter, which becomes more appalling over the years. An editor at Holt uh, told me that what she objected, well, first let me backtrack and say Mother Tongue is about a, uh, a Chicana living in New Mexico who is, falls in love with a, uh, a Salvadoran refugee in 1982, which is the height of the Salvadoran Civil War. And she's fairly typical of my generation. We, we've had to recover Spanish. Uh, we weren't born, I mean, we weren't brought up speaking Spanish. Uh, we were too young to be shaped politically or spiritually by the Vietnam experience or the Chicano Movimiento. And so in many ways, it was Central America that was our point of departure for developing a critique of, of U.S. policy and understanding our place uh, within uh, U.S. history. Um, anyway, so that's... Mother Tongue deals with that issue and arises from the experiences of that time, particularly as a reporter I was covering the sanctuary uh, movement. Uh, anyway, I got this, this interesting letter from an editor at Holt who rejected Mother Tongue because she felt it was too middle class, that the, that the uh, character Maria uh, was too, too, reflected too much on her inner life, I guess you could call it, uh, that's, in other words, uh, the, the impression that she was giving me was that I didn't write a book about someone who was, you know, picking lettuce or tomatoes 
in a field, uh, which of course, you know, is is uh, was kind of interesting. You know, the message was this is this is too middle class. This is a topic that maybe a white girl sh uh, can write about, but not uh, not a Chicana. And um, anyway, so that was that was the end of that. I that was kind of my first taste, in some ways, of of, of someone's, you know, some Easterner's preconception of what Chicano or what they thought Chicano literature should be, which was even more interesting for me because coming from New Mexico, the, the immigrant experience is, is, is foreign to us. You know, I can trace my family back to, to uh, 1703, and that's just the genealogy charts. You know, then our, our Indian ancestors have been there since, you know, the beginning of time, according to our creation story. So, so the, we didn't cross the border. The border crossed us. You know, we were Spain, then we were Mexico, then we were United States. So to expect me to write the book about, you know, picking lettuce in, in the migrant field somewhere, you know, it, it didn't add up, but that was the implication of the, in the letter. And it was bothersome, too, because this editor clearly didn't get that what Mother Tongue deals with very, very heavily is spirituality, uh, the, the Indio, Mexicano, medieval Spanish spirituality that, that is so predominant in New Mexico. So anyway, that was my taste of, of my first taste of uh, Eastern publishing, or lack thereof, and I didn't want to waste time trying to find an agent, and so I sent the book to Bilingual Press. They, they accepted it immediately. It was supposed to come out a year later, but then it won the Westaf, Western States Book Award for, for Fiction, and so there was a slight delay because there's a timetable with that. It turned out to be a huge blessing because... Uh, uh, Westaff was very committed to promoting it, so I spent quite a bit of the last, well, I guess year and a half just traveling nonstop uh, with the book. Uh, let's see, then what happened? Then last fall, I found myself not knowing what I was going to do with my life. I was impoverished, working on another, uh, working on a second novel called Mexican Rubies. Um, and then all of a sudden it went up. For auction, I'm not even sure how the whole damn thing works. But basically, Warner made a floor bid, and then Penguin jumped in, and and then Ballantine jumped in, and uh, Ballantine, the One World imprint, uh, decided to won the auction. And before I knew it, four other—it's been picked up now in in four other countries. It's due to come out over the next 12 to 18 months in in Spanish out of Spain. In, um, in Dutch, in, in Portuguese out of Brazil, and then in, um, in Germany. So this has all happened very quickly. Oh, one thing to mention, too, is even though I got that rejection letter initially, uh, an agent contacted me who had somehow, through Holt, seen my manuscript. And she wrote me immediately and said, please, please, you know, send me whatever you write next. And so I got you know, very mixed messages from two uh, important perspectives out of, uh, out of New York. So suddenly life changed last fall. I, you know, I, Mother Tongue is now coming out October 1st. Um, I now have a, a little bit of money so that I can actually work on Mexican rubies. And let's see, I lost my train of thought here. So, oh, this is an, okay, another interesting thing that's happened. I came out to meet the women at One World, and I was really astonished because I had always been told that, you know, when you go back east to the big publishing houses, you're going to encounter these people who really um, aren't literate, and, you know, basically the bottom line is all, all, all that matters. And I know that in many cases that's true. Uh, but in this particular case, I've been very blessed because the One World women, as I call them, uh, Cheryl Woodruff, the founder, 
an African-American woman, and uh, Joanne Wyckoff, my editor. The One World women have really made it a point to involve me in the whole birth, rebirthing of this book. It's going to come out in hard and paper, even though it came out in hard and paper through Bilingual Press. And, I mean, they've consulted me on, you know, what should be on the cover and, you know, what, just everything, every detail, and, and that kind of back and forth has been really precious to me, really. Uh, it feels like we're a bunch of midwives gathered around the book, ensuring that each little detail is going to come out right. So I haven't had that sense of a loss of control. Um, they've invited me to, you know, offer any kind of insight I can on how to spin the book. Um, because, I, again, I think it, while it deals with Central America, it, it also deals heavily with theology and spirituality, which is how I frame my politics. Uh, so anyway, there has been a sense of being involved with New York in a very collaborative fashion. Next book of poetry will come out with the University of Arizona. You know, I'm not sure what that experience is going to be like, except that they're in my own backyard. I live in Tucson, so I suspect that that will, should be a relatively positive experience. Um, just in closing, I think I would say um, that I've been fortunate. I've been fortunate because I, be I came between what we often call the Ana Sandra phenomena and then the next generation of writers. You know, in other words, there were people before me who did a lot of breaking down doors and getting in that made people begin to pay attention and to realize, as Ana said, you know, we're here, we read, we buy books. Uh, and we write, and we're here to stay. And so I was blessed in that regard and very lucky. I'd say where I'd have to disagree, I agree with, with uh, Francisco in a kind of a meta metaphysical sense that good work ultimately does triumph. You get, you get the word out there, and again, in a metaphysical sense, it, something powerful happens. But in a hard economic sense, good work does not triumph in our society. Uh, we, unfortunately, we're very naive about the workings of capitalism, particularly now, the movement of capital. And um, I know a lot of people whose good work is not triumphing. Triumph, triumph is that the way you say it? <laughs> anyway, you know, ain't getting out there. Um, and so that brings up a whole other issue, which we can discuss later, which is small independent presses and independent bookstores and the need for us who have made it to push our privilege and to make sure that those things don't go under. And finally, I would say, and this can be attached to later discussion, and that is that uh, we have to keep reminding ourselves of, the fundamental of a fundamental contradiction, and that is the further we get ahead, the more and more people on Earth, percentage-wise, many of our own gente cannot read. And until we address the issue of literacy, any kind of discussion we have about getting published is, as far as I'm concerned, uh, moot, useless, and perhaps even unethical. I wanted to uh, go about this a little differently than what Martin asked me to do, so if you bear with me, I think somehow it'll wind up coming back and being germane to our conversation. Uh, I, I, when he asked me to talk about publishing, uh, I tried to, and I couldn't figure out where I needed to begin to make some kind of a statement about now. So I started going back to think about my own life and my own experience. and generally the experience of the Puerto Ricans, and I began discovering a lot of very interesting things, like for example, Puerto Rico 
due to certain interesting American policies, we uh, wrote in Spanish, but we learned in English. So that's one of the things that happened to us, and I don't uh, just mean my generation, it went on into uh, later, and of course it started in 1898 or thereabouts. Then we have the phenomenon that now we're in New York and in other parts of the United States, practically in all the, all the parts of the United States, and then we write in English, but we learn no Spanish. In time, things evolve, and we write in English, and we learn bilingually. But then uh, we cannot publish in English, and we cannot publish in English for a number of things, number of reasons. One of them being that there's no place to start, because the way uh, the way I see it, the way people begin their publishing careers is in little magazines. But there were none. There was only one, The Recon. It went out for five issues and it died. So if you were trying to write poems germane to your experience, where would you send them? And if you didn't get a few published at first, how would you have a manuscript to interest anyone? Okay, then as this process goes on, now we begin publishing in English at last, and then it begins to accelerate, and now we have Latino writers editing books, meaning, importantly, that we're selecting what we think is important and putting them in these books. And finally, another very interesting new phenomenon is that we start translating ourselves. And a refinement of that is now extra crazy. We translate from Spanish to English, and now we translate back from English into Spanish. All right, on the other side of this, that's what we've been doing, and here's what the other people have been doing. The other has been writing about us in English nastily. And if you don't believe me, I'm going to read to you a quotation from a big publisher, Scribner's. I believe this appeared March 1940. For every 18 Puerto Ricans arriving in New York, not a single one turned out to be any good. Ten live off public charity. One is tubercular. Two suffer from malaria. Three have syphilis. And the other two shack up with women. I never thought that was going to be an accusation against me somehow, but okay. And as for Puerto Rican women, all of them turned to prostitution to earn money to send their husbands back to Puerto Rico. I, I suspect that must have been some kind of a laudable thing to do on their parts, get rid of these uh, bums and tubercular people. So in the beginning, we were described as dark, <coughs> sick, stupid, lazy, and so on. The beginning, of course, for Puerto Ricans is, uh, uh, goes back to the American Civil War well, of course, the beginning goes back to the Spaniards who had the first city in what we now call the United States. And uh, to uh, Spanish and the Spanish community, which was active during the Civil War in New York, mainly a lot of spies who were trying to figure out what side was going to win so they could advise France and England what to do and what to say. And we had our first uh, newspaper. We don't talk much about journalism as publishing, but 
newspapers, first newspaper, 1808, something like that, in Louisiana. So there was a long tradition. But if you go looking for the books in the publishing houses, here's what you find. Nothing until the 1950s, in which I find, and this is not a scientific study, so you can refute it all you want. That won't bother me. I probably will learn something. One book in the 1950s, in that decade, and it was a sociology book. It was written by a Puerto Rican woman with an Anglo co-writer, Elena Padilla, with a man named Stewart, whose name uh, I have not been able to locate. That book can still be found, along with some other books that then came out in the 1960s, in which three books came out by two different publishers. And those books were all, um, two of them were written by Anglos about Latinos, and one of them was a man named Jesus Colón, who was a writer for the Daily World in New York. Big Leap, uh, 1970s, in this informal survey of mine, 23 books, 14 publishers. And by this time now, you can see all the major names, the names that you know, like Holt and Vintage and so on. The only one I didn't seem to find by anybody was Putnam. I don't know why. Maybe because they have so many subdivisions that they probably did publish some of these books. But now, by the 19, if you get 23 books in the 1960s, you think by the 70s, you're going to begin to see this thing snowballing and really picking up this energy. And again, I say this was not scientific, so maybe there's some fault here. In the 1980s, you got 21 books, 13 publishers. In other words, it actually went down from the 70s. And now in the 1990s, where we still have some months to go, I found 31 books, 20 publishers. Uh, one of, the, one of the problems I found as I was doing this and thinking about this is that I don't know what to make of that. And uh, I said to Martin one night in a conversation, we lack a very interesting uh, piece of information here, and I don't know where we could find it. We need to know how many people are writing, sending manuscripts to publishers, and having them rejected. Otherwise, you could sit in the mathematical possibility that any one of us who writes a book and sends it to a publisher would have it published just because we are exotic. It's a possibility, right? It's probably not uh, very probable, but Jimmy the Greek is dead. I don't know how I could get the odds on that one anymore. Uh, I wanted just to read some of the names of the uh, publishers, if I could. Arte Publico, jumps in around the 1980s, Curbstone Press, Bilingual Press, you've heard them, Ghost Pony Press, David Godine, Greenfield Review Press, Monthly Review, New Directions, Penguin, Ishmael Read Books, Theater Communications Group, because one of the things we don't talk about is people who write plays and get them published. We, we tend to think about poetry and fiction. University of Pittsburgh, by the way, the university presses seem to get uh, more and more into it now. Georgia, Pittsburgh, Oxford, I don't know. Vintage, something called Mainstream Publisher, Dial, Dutton, Bantam, Barlinmere, Harper and Row, Hill and Wang, Plus Ultra, Quinto Sol. And uh, the other interesting thing that I came across in this kind of uh, sweeping look through things was I started finding a bunch of names of writers about whom I cannot uh, get any further information. Lefty Barreto, somebody knows him, please catch me at the end. Nikki Cruz, books which I think came out in the 50s. Uh, Nikki Cruz may have been writing about conversion in religion as a way to escape drugs. Remember that we were suffering 
enormous rates of uh, heroin addiction in those years. And one of the ways that a lot of heroin addicts finally kicked the uh, habit was uh, by going into uh, Pentecostal and other Protestant uh, church movements and converting. But meanwhile, here are a roster of names. I have maybe like 20 names here who appeared in one of the early anthologies called Borinking and in some others of people who had poems, who put them in there and, and did something and never heard from again since then. So one, one has to ask, you know, what, what happened in the publishing world? Is it normal? Uh, Martin used a phrase with me the other day. He said, one book people. I guess that's a possibility. I wonder what happens uh, if you come out in an anthology um, uh, whose taste is reflected in one person and then you keep on writing and sending it to places and people uh, don't, don't agree, don't like your work and so you keep getting regretted. Uh, rejected. So it's like a little bit like, well, I'm going to keep banging my head against the wall, putting out this postage, putting out the postage for them to reject me, and getting these little uh, slips of paper that say, thank you very much for sending your material. They don't even say you're rejected. We don't say, we reject you. We hated this poem. Don't send it ever again to us. <laughs> you get no contact. You get, thank you very much for having sent your material to us. And you wonder, what, did they even read it? What does that mean? So, very impersonal, the publishing world. Now, have I got any more time, I think? Because I'd be happy to shut up. I don't have any more time. Thank you very much. <laughs> okay, I was... Um a late bloomer. I didn't start writing till <clears throat> till I was in my mid twenties. And um, after writing for two years, I was invited to to start publishing my work in in a number of um, small press literary journals and some newspapers, some magazines, um, Women's Wear Daily, you know, for strange places. Um, it was also at the same time that I participated in a National Ethnic Writers Conference um, in Stevens Point, Wisconsin, with 28 other um, multinational writers, multi-ethnic writers. And um, for two weeks, we workshopped with each other. And it was, it was a turning point in my, in my writing development. Um, it was when I decided I would become serious about writing because um, I experienced through them what um, that writing could be an effective artistic vehicle for creative transformation. And um, up until then, I, my goal was to be an artist, was to be a visual graphic artist. Um, I had never considered writing as an extension of that. Um, at, at that conference, that, that's what happened. Also at that conference, I met Joe Bruchat who invited me to participate in, to, to be published in an anthology with two other writers, um, Jesus Papoleto Melendez and Americo Casiano. For various reasons, at some point or other, they both decided to withdraw from being part of this anthology. And, um, but I was still invited to, to publish, so consequently I wound up having an opportunity to publish my first book. Um, it took me six years after that to write 
the poems that I felt were worthy to go in the book. And even then, I still wasn't satisfied with um, what I had written. Um, when the book finally came out in 1980, um, we found out in the process of publishing it that it was the first extensive volume of poetry by a Puerto Rican woman to be by a, excuse me, a Puerto Rican, New Yorican, Latina, Boricua, Quisqueyana, Taino, Africana woman <laughs> to be published in the United States. So I, when I found that out, I considered myself extremely lucky. Um, I felt that, you know, if there was ever a, a time that I was at the right place at the right time, that that was it, and I, and I was truly blessed. Um, okay, so, so anyway, um, I also, I want to say that as absurd as it may seem that um, I don't believe that publishing <laughs> is necessarily a criteria for deciding the quality of your work. Um, I know a lot of wonderful writers who never publish, who don't look to publish, who could care less about publishing. But I think that um, we are cultivating a community and we're cultivating literature and we're cultivating all kinds of things, um, things that we need for, for ourselves and that we need for each other. Um, however, in order uh, to, to win an NEA fellowship or any of these other fellowships, there are certain publishing criteria. You know, you have to have um, a, a minimum, I think, of 16 poems published in five uh, literary journals or something along those lines. Um, or you have to have a book of a minimum of 60 pages, um, et cetera, et cetera. Um, for many years, the small press was essentially the only vehicle available for us and is essentially still the only vehicle available for us. Um, it's in recent years, because of the growing numbers of Latinos within the United States or, or the acknowledgement of, because we've always been here, but the um, it's become lucrative. It's become uh, marketably feasible for big publishers now to get on the Latino bandwagon. So now they're looking to publish us. The only problem is that they don't know how to publish us because they've never marketed us before. So now they need us to develop their marketing schemes and marketing plans. Now, this is a strange, um, again, I think the partnership, there's a partnership between the writer and the publisher. If we go with the small press, um, a good writer can help to cultivate the small press. And there's this kind of interdependent relationship. By the same token, the press can help to cultivate the writer. Um, why a writer would go to a s small press or to a large publisher, I really think it's, it's up to the individual writer. Um, some people have uh, concerns about cultivating a community, cultivating a literature, cultivating a lot of things. Um, I think we can do that in many different ways. Um, it's, it's really a personal choice. Um, some writers just have a commercial agenda. So naturally, they would go to, <coughs> to a large publisher. Um, I think that um, for us to cultivate some kind of economic power base is part of whatever that we're talking about. Um, and as a mother with children, that's a real important issue. In any case, it's the, I, I believe it's the writer that sells the book. Um, I'll start talking fast. Okay. 
Okay. So one, one of my issues is do we keep giving our good work and our good labor away to others who could care less about us in personal ways or us in social and communal ways? Um, though that's an important issue for me. Um, it may not be for some others. Um, each one of us, I think, um, determines that on our own terms. Um, in any case, the big presses, they, they want us now. We're, we're popular. We're, you know, it's, they know that the money can be made now. There's a market, and it's been established. Um, the fourth largest Spanish-speaking country in the world, um, Latinos, even though we write in English. Um, okay, now as far as um, contracts, I think there's, contracts vary. There are many different variations to that as there are writers on the planet, and you have to, I think you have to, you have to negotiate for what you want and for what you feel comfortable with. Um, there's a lot of issues to consider, some of which I talked about. And then there's the issue of money. Um, most small presses do not have money. <coughs> publish with small presses or you publish with, um, magazines, literary journals that are not commercial. Um, there's often very little money, if any, although um, you, get, you get some exposure, you get readings, you get to lecture, and that's kind of the, the offshoot of, of that. Um, when I published my first book, there were no royalties, but uh, there was an opportunity to publish my first book, and they only printed 700, which, which was a very small number of books. Um, they all sold within the first couple of years. When I published my, my third book, Loosetown Mockingbird Mambo, um, there was advanced royalties, and I'm still getting royalties, and the book is still selling, and they've reprinted it. And so I expect that'll keep going as long as the book keeps selling. And of course, we all know that is the writer who sells the book, um, more so than I think the publishing company when I think when you do decide who you're going to publish with, you need to know what is their um, what's their marketing strategy, how do they plan to move the book. Uh, some are, some of the writers I know have published with university presses who've essentially sat on the book, and the book has sat in a shelf and it hasn't moved, and 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 it's still there, gathering dust. Um, I think those things are important. Um, we have a commitment to our work and. Um, I think, you know, how it moves is important to, to some of us anyway, where and how and the why and all of that. Um, my, my second book, Tropical Rains, was, was, um, was self-published. And um, one, of, one of the things that I wanted to do with this, because I, I do a lot of presentations in the, school and in the schools and I teach in the schools, I wanted to show students, one, how they could publish their own work, and other writers. Um, I'm, I'm of the school of thought that says, don't sit around and wait for someone to come and hand you your, your ticket or whatever it is. Um, I believe that we have to establish our own institutions and build our own institutions and make our own vehicles. Um, for, for eons, we've been excluded from the mainstream. Um, we, we're 
often not considered valid or literate. I mean, I'm a total contradiction. I'm a woman of color who speaks and writes in English. I'm not supposed to be able to do this. Um, the fact that I do this is a, is, a, is a total revolutionary act on my part, and, um, and, I, and I'll do it every day for, the, for as long as I can. And um, and basically, oh, this this book was a vehicle for uh, a company, um, uh, the African Caribbean Poetry Theater. It was this was the book that I published. It was part partly used to fundraise for the company, so it served a double purpose. It served my purpose, which was to get my work out there, and to um, to show some young folks and some other folks how to, how to promote their own self. And it also raised money for the company, so it had a, a, a two-way purpose. Um, I think that uh, my, our responsibility or my responsibility is, uh, and I can only speak for me, I can't speak for anyone else, but I, I think my responsibility is just to be the best whoever it is that I am, who, who the me in me is, and, um, and I think that that will follow, will follow its path, it will find its purpose. And um, labels, I don't know. I, I, I feel very uncomfortable about labels. I think labels were created to divide us and to keep dividing us. And um, the sooner we get rid of them, I think um, the sooner we can begin to do some real communication. Try to go real quick. <laughs> um, I, I have. I, I think I've had like two lives, but I'm going to start with my first life. And I guess the thing with me is, I I, I think I was totally a believer, and uh, I, I felt very American, and believed that you did things and you worked and you published. And I went along this way. I started when I was in my late 20s. Wrote a novel that was bad. <laughs> and, uh, and it's sitting on a shelf. But then I started writing stories. And then um, and it was at the era of Raymond Carver and uh, Tobias Wolff and Ann Beatty. And all these stories were appearing. It was the golden age of short stories. So I started writing short stories. And I continually published them. I published them frequently. At, um, starting in about 1982, I started publishing. And up until 1992, I published probably 40 short stories, all in good magazines, regarded, well-regarded literary magazines through the country. And meanwhile, <coughs> um, I guess my dream had always been New York. I wanted New York. I just, it wasn't because I thought I was so wonderful. I just thought I wasn't any worse than what they were publishing. <laughs> and I couldn't understand why all these other people get it published and I couldn't. And so I would hold out and say, well, you're, you're telling me I'm worse than this that you just published. And I don't buy it. I'm sorry. I don't buy it. And uh, so I sort of hung in there up until about 1992. And, you know, all the, 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 you know, and I, I realized at one point I had like 600 manuscript pages of published fiction that couldn't see a book. Nobody in New York. And there were three things that I think I figured out that, that weren't in my fiction. I'm a construction, I was a construction worker for like 16 years. And I sort of believed in that. You work, you do your job, you turn in your stuff, and things happen. And uh, so I was sort of still believing it, but, and a lot of my writing was about 
the people that I knew all my life, people that worked or people that were looking for work. And, uh, but according to what I seem to be in the New York scene, uh, there was really three kinds of Mexicans, three kinds of Chicanos that were allowable. You had to have illegals. You know, illegals, that was like something that we all know about. And, or maybe some cholos, some gang members, like where are my gang members in my stories? Why, what kind of neighborhood is this? And, uh, and then finally was the sort of the curandera, curandero syndrome, where you know you had to go to not to doctors but to herbalists, <laughs> and uh, and I didn't have a lot of those either, and you know I went to a chiropractor and I said does that count? And, uh, <laughs> and I always joke, you know, I went around my neighborhood. It's all you know. I looked around. It's like, gee, man, there's a bunch of Mexicans in my neighborhood. I mean, it's like 95% Mexican American. Most everybody speaks Spanish dominantly. And I saw like notary public signs, you know, no curandera, not one curandero in my, <laughs> I did find one about, about two years ago up a uh, uh, street up nearby, uh, it was like uh, tarot, tarot, tarot readers, um, psychic reading, and curandero, you know, I thought, well, finally. Anyway, uh, but then, uh, so all these, these stories I published, I, I, I just finally flat out said, that's it, they don't want me, and I gave up and gave up to somebody that did, which was the N University of New Mexico Press. And uh, when they published me, a new world opened up um, to me and a total reversal of the fortune, almost to the other extreme. And I've been extremely happy with my new publisher, Grove. They've been extraordinarily generous, almost too generous, frankly. <laughs> I shouldn't say that. No, not generous <laughs> enough. Not yet. Um, but. There, there's a few curious things that I found, and again, coming from the point of view of being wanting to be an American writer, I really am proud of where I was raised and born, and of my background, and uh, which is, you know, my mother was Mexican, I was raised by my mother. She was very proud of being here, and I was, I'm very proud of being here. But I noticed over the years, though, these stories that I would be publishing, I always look, you know, as anybody that writes short fiction, would look in these best American short story anthologies and I'd say, God, I wonder if I'm in, in the back this year, you know? And never, not once, would I even make out of the 100 best stories of the year, would I even make 99? I wouldn't even get a 99. I'd say, God, I didn't even make 99 this year, you know? And uh, I won the Hemingway Prize. And I was sort of like pleased that, you know, these three different juries had picked my book. And which none of which the, none of the stories of which had ever even been considered a best American short story would never been considered to be published in a in a in a slick you know New York magazine where they'd all appeared now and then I'll leave it with this I was on a panel with uh, Bobby Ann Mason she won the Hemingway and you'll you'll know you know a lot of Hemingway winners um, but I was sitting with her and she was telling a story I was like the last there too and. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> and she told this story that she had published in How, you know, the American Dream Works. And she, you know, submitted like 19 or 20 stories to, the, to Roger Angel. And I always thought, oh, you already got to Roger Angel while you were getting rejected. I didn't even get there. I got these forms. I mean, it was all I ever got from the New Yorker. But she said she'd submitted like 20 stories over this 12 or 13 month period. And finally, the 20th was the one. And it, 
got taken, and boom, everything happened. Well, I, you know, diminished mine, and I said, well, I think I had like 19, <coughs> 19 stories. Maybe I didn't quite go to number 20 or something, you know. But I had submitted to the Atlantic and to Esquire over a 12-month period 19 stories, all of which basically, you know, maybe a few aren't, but in this collection that won this Hemingway Prize, and they were all just flatly rejected. And in fact, I realized at that point, I had like, you know, not to sound too immodest, but I thought I had five stories, five stories that were as good as some of the ones they published. And they turned them all flat down. And I, it was at that point when I sort of said, that's that, I'm not doing this anymore, they don't want me. I can't write better than that, and they don't want me. And it's sort of curious that now I'm on a panel like this, as a Latino writer, I'm very proud of being Chicano, and I still find it, I, I still want to say, wait a minute, I'm still an American writer, why am I doing this? I'll leave it there. Okay, first of all, I'd like to uh, thank everyone for the comments. And uh, in the interest of time, I think I will now open uh, the panel up to questions. Before I do that, I want to ask very quickly if uh, anyone on the panel wants to add to or respond to anything said by anyone else on the panel. You have that opportunity if you want it. A united front. Okay. Um, at this point, again, uh, in the interest of time, let's open it up to questions from the audience um, for any or all of the panelists. Yes. I'll start because that's a been a major issue for me. Um, I be, well, you know, I graduated with what turns out to be this useless degree from college, and so I got married. And uh, that, uh, really, you do crazy things, you know, when you're in your 20s dreaming of being a writer. I married, and um, both of us were very committed politically to living simple lives anyway. And so that was fortunate, and uh, through him I was able to get uh, health insurance. And... Um, but we didn't have much money to speak of. But I was living in a, with a, a what was in a, a Catholic kind of radical writer's community in Old Town in Albuquerque. So I had the kind of, you could say, psychological support for having no money. But I did get the damn health insurance, which was about what I was worried about the most. Uh, then my marriage came apart, and I realized I had to figure out a way to earn a living. So I learned how to write who, what, when, where, a story in 500 words or, or less, which still doesn't come easily to me. I'm not a born reporter, but writing was the only thing that I could do. So I started doing that, and fortunately, I had this little apartment in Old Town that uh, the rent was 250 a month. Uh, but on paper, I stayed married while my husband went off to uh, join Witness for Peace in Nicaragua, so I still got his health insurance. I mean, it sounds crazy, but this is the kind of day-to-day -day decisions that people have to make. What goes, you know, what, what goes first? Do I do without this? Do I do without that? You know, do I need health insurance? Uh, so anyway, he goes off to Nicaragua. I handle his papers, his paperwork, and so forth in the United States. And so on paper, I'm married for, uh, let's just say, a number of years. And so that enables me to do the writing that I want to. I'm freelancing, uh, writing one religion story a week for the, for the Albuquerque Journal, and then starting to write periodic pieces for the National Catholic Reporter. Nothing. I mean, I fall 
still technically below the poverty line, but I feel rich because I have health insurance while growing numbers of people are going without it. And then it helped, it was helpful when I was indicted because then my, all my legal costs were covered by, were taken care of by your tax dollars. Um, a federal defender who turns out to be a brilliant uh, first, first Amendment lawyer uh, handled my case and it didn't cost me a damn thing. Uh, so anyway, that happened, then that was over with, then I did what I had promised all my life I wouldn't do, which is I took a full-time job. I went to Kansas City, I was a full-time staff writer with National Catholic Reporter, which is an independent news weekly, far left of center. And um, great paper to work for, the last year I was national editor, so I had a real income, plus the health insurance. I couldn't take it anymore. And, uh, I mean, I love the paper, but, you know, the full-time job, I, it was very hard to write, even though I did manage to write Mother Tongue during that period. So I, I finally quit. No, I, I came to Tucson, did one more year for them covering border issues, then quit. Stuck in the same boat, you know, how am I going to get the, the health insurance? Meanwhile, I'm starting to get lots of gigs still around the United States from the first publication of poetry. And then um, by last, then... My novel comes out, Mother Tongue, more gigs, but still it was very hard. I didn't know what I was going to do because uh, even with the West Staff Prize and bilingual press's efforts and everything and getting out across the country, I was getting, fame was preceding fortune in a really serious way. And uh, so by last fall, I was panicked and um, I didn't know what to do, so I was about to let go of my health insurance, but because of certain maintenance medications I'm on, uh, I knew I couldn't, so I, had to, I ha knew I had to do something quick. Then the book sold. And I, I, I put this out there. Oh, and meanwhile, there was a second marriage in there, and I was the financial, <laughs> I almost forgot. <laughs> I, had to, I did a lot of, he provided emotional support, and I provided economic support. And I'm laying this out in a detailed way because these are the real issues, and I think Sandra brought it up. These are the real issues that real women writers have to deal with. How do you get the health insurance? How do you get, you know, how do you deal with the spouse thing? I knew early on there was no way I could afford to have kids. That's my decision. Now, now it's, it's not just an economic decision. It's, it's just that, you know, it's not my calling in this lifetime. But uh, these are the kinds of things that I had to struggle with to, to figure out how I was going to do my writing and somehow make it. I don't know where I'd be right now. I might be with a real, having a real job right now if my book hadn't sold. So I think the problem that we all come up against in the publishing world, but maybe just in, in, in our society in general, is how can you be in a calling literature that is so much about cultivating vision and community, and yet at the same time, in order to make it, you have to engage in a certain degree in manipulation, in hustling, in being see, you know, seeing and being seen, um, in competition. You know, to me, those values are so much at odds that I hate to even tell young writers, try to publish. Part of me just says, follow your bliss, write, 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 and think about publishing later, because I, I don't want to see those values ruined. And maybe that's why I teach writing and spirituality, because I see writing as a calling. But unfortunately, if you're going to live, you have to figure out how to do the hustle, and I, you know, I hate it.
Can I do this one? I'll do this one. At least, I guess it's more interesting to me. Not so, I'd like to step into the magazine world, I guess. Larger, you know, like even in Texas, we're still, you know, which I consider like occupied Mexico. Um, <laughs> we don't have them in the major magazines. And I just sort of saw something in the New Yorker, which I, you know, these very curious articles to me. It's an interesting, well-written article. The writer had gone to the Seattle to, to interview some farm workers that were on strike, a union strike. But suddenly he's looking at a kid who he decides is a gang member. And he follows that story, the gang member story. And this whole interesting union story sort of just falls away completely. And then he finds out that the boy isn't even a gang member, but he had some gang member friends, so he went there too. And so that was the whole story, to follow this little... Now, the family where this boy was from had two brothers who did apparently well, so well they're not interesting, I guess, to New York and to the New Yorker. That story isn't there. And so you find... And then the end, oh, the union, by the way, sort of worked... You know, the strike, they gave a speech, and that's it. And then they fought, you know, sort of follow the boy and the girl again. Now, I think this is what, we, what goes wrong when you don't have Latinos... In the, in the office is saying, you know, I'm sort of tired of this. I'm sort of tired of reading this. I don't care that you're interested in our little gang members. Who cares? I don't care that you're interested. That isn't what we talk about, and we're not talking about that. And I think it probably extends, and I think my experience is, is very much that way with my publishing. Um, previous to getting published, my books, just the questions, I'd, I'd get these letters back, oh, this is exactly the type of person we're looking for, but this isn't the material. You know, and I, I, you know, what could I do? I just didn't know what to say. Sorry, you know, I'm working right now, you know. I got everybody I know, you know. I had a piece I remember being turned down from a good magazine, all Chicanos working on the railroad. Nope, not good. But then when I mentioned gangs, boom. There it is, you can do that. And that's what's wrong. Okay, so if you're keeping score, that's now two Latino editors. <laughs> three, three Latino editors. Do I hear four?
that's girlfriend, Joe. Yeah. <laughs> there it is. Serious. <laughs> yeah, I went around as El Guy, but I think there's a couple more guys coming out. I don't know. <laughs> Any responses? I think there's um, there's there's uh, uh, a blossoming of of literature in our community, and that's been going on for the past um, well, 20 years since I've been doing it. Um, there's I I have I find that within the Latino writers that there's a great support network amongst each other. Um, we take our turns putting readings, organizing readings together, um, finding ways to sponsor our trips to wherever towns and cities we're in and to pay our writers fees and, um, and whatever general information we, we learn about, we network with each other. And this, this kind of happens um, very informally, um, but I find that it happens uh, a lot to, to, since I've been, since I've been in this, since I've been writing, um, I experience this the way I don't experience it anywhere else, but there is a, a great camaraderie among the writers. It's, it's like a family, you know, it's a, it's a strong kinship. And, um, and I guess it's because of what we've confronted. Um, the, um, we've had a need to link up with each other and keep each other informed about, do you know that the, uh, the, the knife of fellowships are up and the deadline is next week and, and there's a job opening up here and people just keep each other informed and that's how it has to happen. You know. Well, there is, there is a, there's only one New Yorican press that I'm aware of, and maybe you can clue me in if there's any more. Shamal Books, which is um, published, the publisher's Louis Reyes Rivera out in Brooklyn. I'm not aware of any others, but. Well, certainly there are Latino publishers, and um, there are larger, uh, by larger, well, it's oxymoronic, sort of large, small presses, like Arte Publico and Bilingual Press, but there are also small presses like Tiachucha Press in Chicago, which is run by Luis Rodriguez. And uh, in addition to that, there are uh, Latino editors who are always trying to bring Latino writers uh, into uh, their particular forum, whatever it may be. I'm a poetry editor at the Massachusetts Review, and I recently edited uh, something called El Coro, which was a collection of Latino poetry in that, uh, in that magazine and which featured many of the writers who are going to be in attendance at this festival. So it does go on all the time.
want to go back a minute, <coughs> which I think maybe will, will help to answer your question. You know, one of the things about writing is that it's an extremely lonely, solitary sort of an endeavor. And when you have to work and then also try to write, uh, you would be a sort of a maniac to think that you're also going to start a press, small, large, or medium, or even tiny for that matter. Because the minute that you start a press, you have just stolen part of your life away from your writing. And when you ask if, if you as a writer can uh, come together in groups and, and, uh, and try to create strategies for what can happen in publishing and how you establish your relevance and all of that, uh, it's nice that we could all be here tonight. Uh, I wouldn't want to do this every week or even every two weeks, go to a regular meeting about things that would be taking away my evening from trying to do some writing. Now, once a group of writers <coughs> uh, have quote-unquote bestsellers, whatever that happens to be, and they find the, the income stream where they can take 20, 30 hours a week to write and 20 or 30 hours a week to politic, then maybe something like that will happen. At the moment, uh, I don't know. I'm, I don't know what the income streams are of, of uh, Latino writers. I suspect that, with the exception of Oscar Iguelos, our income stream, the rest of us, is negative to slightly positive. <laughs> so, uh, expecting us, you know, we we cannot be all things to all people. Really, our ob I think our obligation, in most cases, is get home and do our writing and then hope that uh, the other problems, as Sandra says, uh, remember that I don't write, I don't write to uh, publish. I write because I like it, because there's something there <laughs> bugging me and I want to get it down on paper. Not to say that what you're talking about can't happen, but uh, I think that has to come from another class of writers. Um, let me just add something. I mean, I could go on and on in, in, in answer to that question, but. Uh, Things have been happening. I mean, I think what you're talking about is the establishment of what will, of a group of people or thinkers who will be viewed as the, the Latino intellectuals who are doing the social criticism and so forth, not only critiquing our own literature, but going further than that. Uh, the, the basis for that is, exists in, in the Chicano community. Uh, fortunately, because of, of a lot of the work that was done in the in the late 60s, early 70s, um, you see that in in uh, Chicano studies in universities, for example. You see that now with with the four-part uh, PBS series on Mexican Americans. In other words, some of our people ha are now old enough and have enough some kind of of backing uh, capital something so that they're able to be explore our history, write about it, about it, put us in context in the way that you're talking about. Um, it's difficult because of the lack of the, the economic base. Uh, another example of what you're talking about is uh, Anna's book, the, the Massacre of the Dreamers. You know, that's a, that's, a, that's a classic example of what we need to do more and more of so that we can not only explain ourselves to outsiders, but more importantly, perhaps to explain ourselves to ourselves, in other words, get the dialogue going about where we are right now historically, economically, how that's reflected in the literature, you know, some of the questions that I think you're, you're talking about. Um, 
when you're talking about Hispanics, though, Latinos, you have to be careful because, you know, you're talking about 20-something subgroups. And so, like I know, for example, in New Mexico, quite a bit of, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Material has been generated about our literature. You know, it's, it's, it's almost an established field, you know, New Mexico writers, Southwest writing. And of course, that crosses over very much with uh, Native American writing because technically we're all, you know, as a raza, we're all 50-50, you know, Indo-European. Indo um, but I think that what Anna did in undertaking that project is, is a major turning point for us, and I also think that that you know there, there is that is happening out there. You're going to see more of that happening, but it's a dialogue that we have to to pursue in a very in a very serious way, um, because again, it's it's about it's about issues. It's about issue. And it's an issue of our identity, and how we how we get out there. Even more fundamentally than it is of legitimizing our literature. It's answering to the people who, it's explaining ourselves to ourselves and it's answering to the people who say, you don't belong here. Okay, I see we have many questions remaining. Um, I want to remind people that there is a reception following the event where we can continue this discussion. Uh, we have time for a couple more questions and I want to get to some people in the back, yes. Responses. What? What is affirmative action publishing? What, what, I don't. What? What is it? What would that be? Well, I think that we're all sort of exhorting them to do that in one way or one way or another. Um, there, there, there really isn't much we can do to force 
publishers to, to hire more Latino and black editors, if that's what you mean, you know, except in forums like this one or in personal conversations with our editors. I know, for example, that um, in a really odd way, I guess I'm in a very unofficial way, I'll be the fourth Latino editor soon. Uh, when I was living in Mexico City, I was extremely impressed by uh, the quality of the work that a lot of young uh, Latin American writers, because Mexico City draws writers from all over the way New York does. And I think that, that in, a, in a funny way, in the rushed, in a very laudable rush to publish young Latinos in this country, in some ways the next generation of young Latin American writers is being overlooked. And I've been talking with my editor, we're going to begin publishing and translating um, writers that we find, you know, in Latin America, writers that are being over overlooked by other presses. So in a way, through, through enthusiasm, which is always the best motivator there is, right, we're making, we've made a change in my own press. And that's not exactly affirmative action, but um, I think it's even better than that. And um, uh, I don't think you can legislate these things. You know, it's all part of, you know, in some way, whether we want to or not, whether we're communitarian orientated or not, by doing good work, we end up raising the conscious level of everybody about what we're doing. Yeah. One more question. Yes. I have something I really want to say about that. Sometimes it's a lifesaver for literature. I mean, I remember the years that I was living in, in Guatemala. Throughout the 80s, you know, you couldn't buy Miguel Ángel Asturias, Guatemala's Nobel Prize winning novelist. You couldn't find a copy of his novel anywhere in Guatemala. It was considered subversive to have it because it was pro-Indian and, of all things, his son was the leader of the Guatemalan guerrilla <coughs> movement. Um, but we all knew little bookstores, right? There was one um, off, off, off the central plaza there where you could go and get Xeroxed copies of these books, right? And, and books like, the, like, like the, the books that were being published in Nicaragua at that time that filtered into, 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 um, into Guatemala that way, the works of Luis Cardozo y Aragón, all these banned outlaw writers in Guatemala were kept alive, it, basically by by photocopied copies of books. I don't think any one of those guys would have complained one bit about the lost royalties. And I'm, so I'm always for if it's if it's the only way that, to bring the books to to the people you want to read them. I'm all for it. You know, someday, you know, maybe, you know, they'll be able to buy it. But, there's but. there's a. There's a standard practice in, the, in some of the universities um, for where they actually do pay writers for Xerox and copies of their work. Um, and um, I specifically, uh, the person who comes to mind for me is uh, Professor 
Jose Hernandez at Hunter College who put, who compiled um, a, a body of, of work around um, Puerto Rican history and culture. And, uh, and a lot of the work, the material was not, the books were not available. And um, the Hunter entered into a contract with individual authors and paid us, I don't know, something like five cents for each copy that was printed up. Some, some, it was some minimal fee, but. Well, Kinkos won't do it unless you give them your permission. Yes, I know there's some confusion around Kinkos because now they've been um, burned in a lawsuit and they're somewhat paranoid. But speaking as a poet lawyer, I will tell you, go ahead and Xerox the damn thing. You know, consider the alternative, which is silence. Well, I want to thank you for your questions. I want to thank the panelists for their contributions. Thank you all for being here this evening.